Thank you all so much for that. That was wonderful. Let's give them another round of applause. They put. They have certainly put a lot of work into um, into that that um, singing that they did for us today. And you could clearly see the whole gospel story, the whole purpose and the reason for Christmas throughout um, this message of, of what they were singing to us this morning. If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter five verses six through eight. Romans chapter five verses six through eight. While you are doing that, uh, we're going to have a quick video that's going to be on the screen. So I don't know how many of you had, had seen this. I remember seeing this when I was in elementary school. They showed us basically the idea of when you're looking for one thing, you might miss some other things. Now, I don't remember the curtain changing color or the person leaving. And so I saw the gorilla the first time I watched this when I was reviewing this, but I did miss the curtain changing. Uh, but I promise you, if you go back and you watch it, it, did, it does happen the first time. It's almost so easy to miss, you might think that they tried to trick you and that it wasn't actually in there. Um, but the whole point of showing you that this morning, the whole point of this idea is that when you, are, you have a misconception of what's going on, it's easy to miss things. When, you, when you're looking and counting the passes and, and you're hoping to get that right, and it's easy to even get that wrong sometimes. But when you're doing one thing and you're so focused on one thing that you miss what exactly is going on in reality... As we look at love incarnate, this idea of love in the flesh, God's love for us, I think there's some things we need to make sure we truly understand if we want to get a real and true picture of God's love for us and how great His love for us is and what that means for our lives. So if you will, let's look at Romans 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the ability to see such a beautiful illustration of, of your love in the message of Christmas, Christmas through song and praising you. God, we thank you for your word this morning that we can look and see what you have said to us, that you reveal to us and will show us who you are and who we are. God, I pray that as we spend this time in your word and looking at what your word says to us, you would reveal to us more clearly who we are and more clearly who you are and that we would live accordingly. We would respond accordingly. That we could truly see your love for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we're going to see as we look through this passage is the reality of the human condition. The reality of the human condition. In the, in the first verse, verse 6 starts off and says, for while we were still helpless, while we were still helpless, all people are in a state of helplessness before God. And it's important that we understand this reality of exactly how helpless we were if we want to get a real picture of how exactly God loves us. It's only when we come to a place where we have an accurate view of who we are and what that means for us that we can come to a place of understanding the love of God. 
Now, the problem with this is I think that most people, and, and as what we're going to look at will show, most people have a misconception of who they are, how good they are. There was a survey that was done, and in, in, in this survey, 81% of the people believe that humankind is inherently good. Three in four believe that they themselves are fundamentally a good person. And when researchers asked respondents how they would compare themselves to others in their lives, I want you to get this, 46% went a step further, admitting in their eyes they're better than everyone else they know. Almost half the people that were surveyed in this thought that they were the best person that they knew, the most moral, the best. And even, even aside from that, three-fourths believe that they are fundamentally a good person, and then 81% believe that humankind is inherently good. We see this play out in all sorts of ways. If you look around, you've seen in culture, and it's not very hard to find. There's things like New Age spirituality, and that sounds like it's this really offshoot, really small, tangent-type thing, but it's promoted by very influential people. I don't know if many of you watched the Oprah show when she was on, but her view of Christianity, though she would claim to be a Christian, was that we are all inherently good and we have God within us. And that if we will just live into who we truly are, then we are following and we are like God. She would have people on that express this New Age spirituality. And while... These things may not be explicitly believed by a lot of people, and it's, it's growing how many would believe that. These ide ideologies impact many people. If you ask the, the, the average person who doesn't go to church anywhere, doesn't have any affiliation, we've talked about this idea that there are the group of the nuns. They don't claim any religion. They're not saying that they're atheists necessarily. They might say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. They believe in something, but they don't want to indicate or, or lay any claim to where truth might be found. And even in places like the church, we see these ideas from other religions or New Age spirituality impacting the way people view the world. Karma. How many people have you said, well, that's, that's karma for you? That's, that's not a Christian ideology. That's from another religion. Horoscopes, the idea of manifesting. Well, if you just really believe something's going to happen, it will happen. These thoughts are influential and pervasive into people's minds, and they think about these things. And one of the lies that is influential is that we are inherently good people, that we in and of ourselves are good people, that the things we do, the lives we live, we try really hard to be a good person. How many times have you heard people say, or even maybe said yourself, well, yeah, but they, I know they did that, but they're, they're a good person. They've got a good heart. And, and maybe in our minds we would qualify and say, well, I do know what Scripture says and that we are sinful. We have to have a correct view of who we are. Because if we don't have this correct view, it leads to people feeling entitled to the love of God. If we don't understand that we are sinful, if we think that we are good, we feel entitled to the love of God. I think entitlement is something that, that people often like to talk about. And for good reason, it's really easy to see sometimes where people who don't do much expect a whole lot. You've no, you've no doubt seen videos of people who 
kind of make a fool of themselves for the way that they expect others to treat them a certain way while not giving any respect to others in return. While it can be quite easy to identify entitlement in others, I think that entitlement is something that all people struggle with in various ways. We feel like we are deserve and are owed things. Perhaps one of the most common places people feel entitled is in their relationship with God. If we look at verse 7 of the passage we read, For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. If you think through history, there are all sorts of people who have given their lives for causes and laid them down because they they thought that they were worth it. They thought that the thing was worth it that they were fighting for. Men and women who have given their lives for our freedom. I think if we have an entitled mentality, unconsciously, consciously, we start to look at Christ as though what He was doing was dying for us and that we are good. It's almost as though that we believe that Christ was dying for us because we were so good that God would want us want to want to redeem us because of who we are. How many times have you heard someone say, "God wouldn't send me to hell. I'm a good person." If we have that mentality, this idea that God wouldn't send us to hell because we're a good person, then Christ's sacrifice becomes less about His love for us and more about how good we think we are. We have this idea that, that what God does for us is motivated by our goodness. It's called self-righteousness. And if people do accept the idea of sin, they are likely to compare their sin to others. So some people wouldn't even say that sin has any punishment, sin has any bearing on their life, but even those who do may often like to compare their sin to others. Consider what it says in Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the one, than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We have this really pervasive idea that in comparison to others, our sin really isn't that bad. If we were to look and, and compare and have this idea, well, really not that bad compared to other people. And it's almost like we take this, we will we'll use people throughout history to, to almost make a scale. And on one end, on this far side over here, you have people like Hitler, right? That did unspeakable evil, things that there's no way, people that do awful things. And on this other end, you have people that spend their whole life devoted for good, people that do everything they can to serve others. And usually, if if the survey says anything, we like to put ourselves on this side. Maybe we're not the best, but we're definitely not the worst. And we like to place between us and these people a great distance. 
So much that we would use their name as an insult to others when we compare them to them because we're so different than them. But in reality, the great distance doesn't lie between us and these people that we would condemn. The great distance is between all of us and God. You see, we are far more similar to people who have done what we consider unspeakable evil than we are to God. There is so much distance between us and God. We often question, could God really forgive a person who has done fill in the blank? Could God really forgive a person like that? What this reveals is entitlement and self-righteousness within our own hearts. Because the question we should be asking is, how could God forgive someone like me? How could God love and forgive someone like me? We are thoroughly sinful. The first verse alone refers to us as helpless and ungodly. And if we consider the life of David, a man after God's own heart, as the Bible describes him, he lived a life where he sinned. He fell. He made mistakes. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And when he couldn't cover it up, he killed her husband. And when confronted with this sin, he himself lays out how sinful he is. In Psalm 51, 1 through 5, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned, and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David understood the gravity and the nature of his sin. He understood who he was. That before God, before a righteous God, a holy God, he was sinful. He had rebelled. He was living in rebellion. His sin was ever before him. Every person that you can think of in your life, every person in this room, every person that's lived has sinned other than Jesus. And this sin separates us from God. It's not just a small correctable error. It's not when you spill some ketchup on your shirt and you make sure you get the stain out. You try a little harder. We are in desperate need. We are helpless before God. We are ungodly. And it is only through this lens of understanding just how bad our circumstances are, just how bad that we, we are, that we can truly understand the unfathomable love of God. Verse 8, But God proves His own love for us in this. But God proves His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the middle of all of that, in the middle of our rebellion, our entitlement, our self-righteousness, our sinfulness, Christ died for you, for us. God's love does not make very much sense to us. It's so much greater than we can possibly imagine. And Jesus used many parables to share this idea. And one of those parables was the story of the prodigal son. 
the son that comes to the father and says, hey, I can't wait for you to die. I'm, I'm, kinda, I'm getting older. You don't seem like you're about to die, so can I just have my inheritance now? I think we miss that in, in that culture. Him asking for inheritance was saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Give me your money. And the father does. And he goes and he spends his money in scandalous living, partying, wasting it away, finds himself wishing he could eat what he was feeding the pigs. Which if you think about it, for a, for a Jewish person, that's doubly bad because the, the pigs would have been unclean and here he is wishing what he could eat, what the unclean things were eating. And he determines, I'll go back to God. I'll go back to my father and ask to be a servant because they're treated better than this. And when he comes, what does he see? He sees his father run to him. He doesn't wait for him to come to him. He, while he's still far off, it says he runs to him. It's very undignified for a person of his father's stature to run in that day. But he runs to him and says, celebrate. My, my son was dead. He's alive. We've got to celebrate. This is Christ's love for you. This idea of prodigal means in excess. God's love for you, His love for me, is in excess of anything we can understand. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's excessive in, in how we view love. I want you to imagine and think about the person that you dislike the most or have the most bad feelings toward. And we're all human, so go ahead and, and lay aside, well, I don't have any bad feelings towards people. Just lay that aside for a moment. Think about that person. Maybe they've hurt you. They've done wrong things to you. I want you to try to imagine having an incomprehensible love for that person because of how good you are. See, it's just not there, is it? It doesn't come from us. But while we were in rebellion, while we were far off, while we were doing everything we could to run from God, Christ died for us. I want you to think of, of a moment toward the end of Jesus' life when he had been arrested and, and, and Pilate puts forth Jesus and another prisoner to be released. He puts forth Jesus and Barabbas. And in Jesus and Barabbas, you have the Messiah and the notorious criminal. Who would go free? How could the one who deserved to be punished go free and the one who deserved freedom be punished? Because we know the story, right? Jesus wasn't released. And in this picture, we see an example of our own station. If we are one of these two people, we are definitely not Jesus. Though often when we look at stories, we like to identify with the hero of the story. We're like Barabbas, the notorious criminal, the lawbreaker, deserving of death. We're like the ones in the crowd saying, Give us Barabbas. We are like the ones shouting, crucify him. But we see a picture of the love of God because the one who deserved death went free. And the one who was the giver of life went to death for our sake. He very literally took the place that Barabbas deserved.
And if we're going to identify with one of those two people, we must identify with Barabbas as a lawbreaker deserving of death that has been pardoned because of the love of a God that we did not deserve, who loved us while we were in rebellion, while we were sinful. Think of the words to the hymn, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. That is who we are. We are the wretch. We are the despised, the, the broken. That, that as David said in Psalm 51, we are deserving. When God judges, we, He is right. We are guilty. But God loved you. He loved me so much that He gave His Son so that we could be made right with Him. And this is good news. This is the gospel. Because in Him there is no longer shame and guilt, but freedom in Christ. Romans 8.1 says that, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You see, there are two extremes when dealing with God. There's the self-righteousness, this entitlement, this we are good people, God would never send me to hell, I'm a good person that we've already discussed. But there's also the other extreme, which is that you believe you're so bad that God could never love you. Now the hard reality I want you to accept today is that you are as bad as you think you are. But God loves you anyway. You are as far from Him as you could possibly conceive yourself to be, but God loves you anyway. And all of the shame and all of the guilt and all of the anything you've carried in your life because of what you've done or what others have done to you, Christ will take from you because He paid the price. When He was on the cross, He said, It is finished. The work is done. And there is no shame any longer for those who are in Christ. Christ has redeemed us from these things that we feel shame and guilt for and called us to live in newness of life because the love of God is compelling. It compels us to move. It compels us to action, to do something. 2 Corinthians 5.14-15 says, For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died, and all died so for all, and He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Christ's love compels us to live for Him, to live in a new life, to walk, to not live the way we did before, to live for Him, to devote our life to Him. His love compels us to love others. That's a hard one. Because if we've been loved by God in this way, we must love others. We must forgive others in a way like Christ has loved us. And the good news about that is that that power, that love doesn't have to start with within us. It comes from God. We take the love we have been given and share it with others. And Christ's love compels you to follow Him today. Wherever you are in this room, you're, you are in one of two places. You either know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You have a relationship with Him. You have been saved. You understood your sinfulness. And you cried out to Him, and He saved you. Christ's love compels you to follow Him with your life, to live your life for Him. 
But maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Him. Maybe your idea even of who Jesus is has been wrong. Maybe you have had this misconception that, that Jesus is just this thing you have to add into your life to complete your goodness. Instead of what we've talked about, how we were completely incapable, helpless by ourselves, but Christ died for us. Have you hoped in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? Not Jesus and your good works, not Jesus and your own goodness, but Jesus alone, Christ alone for your salvation. Because if you've not, this love that God has loved you with should compel you to follow Him today. To submit and surrender your life for Him. And I would implore you to come to Christ this morning. And if you know Him, I would implore you to follow Him more faithfully because we remember just how much we have been loved by the Father. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank You for this day that You've given us. We thank You for this time that we have together to praise You, to seek You, God, to look at Your Word. And we thank You for how much You loved us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us because without your love and your action, we are helpless and hopeless. But you are so good. You are so loving, so gracious, so merciful. And God, I pray that we would live our lives in complete surrender and awe of what you have done for us. And Father, this morning, I pray that if any do not know you today, that they would surrender their life to you and experience this love today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.